Hello, and welcome to the Newton Knowledge Podcast. My name is Mark Singer, partner of Newton One Advisors, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Stephen Target, managing partner of our firm. Steve, how are we today? Doing great, Mark. Thanks for asking. The Newton Knowledge Podcast will prove meaningful content to our valued advisor community and clients who are interested in learning more about sophisticated insurance-related topics focused on estate planning and executive benefits. During our podcast, we focus our discussions on content that will deliver unique risks into the people, processes, and products that make our industry so critical. Newton One is a national life insurance planning firm delivering customized insurance solutions structured to help clients and their advisors engage in solving estate planning, wealth transfer, business succession, and executive benefits challenges. We are a member of the M Financial Group, offering our clients access to the nation's most prestigious insurance carriers and innovative products available only through our network. Today, we have the privilege in speaking with Ashley Sawyer, partner at Loeb & Loeb. Ashley focuses her practice on tax-efficient planning for wealthy individuals, families, and business executives. She advises on legacy planning for younger generations, estate, gift, and generation-skipping techniques. She also counsels exempt organizations, including charitable trusts, private foundations, public charities on matters involving tax-exempt status and navigating governance issues. Ashley has been recognized as the ones to watch list for the best lawyers and trusts and estates for this year. She has penned many publications, but the one that caught our eye really initiated today's uh, engagement was the piece in December that she co-authored with Mary Ann Mancini, who was also a partner at Loeb & Loeb, titled Life Insurance Mistakes That Keep Attorneys Up at Night. This was distributed via Finseca, the nation's leading financial securities professional lobbyist group, bringing together the resources and traditions of the former AALU and GAM International membership organizations. With nearly 6,000 members advocating on behalf of life insurance and retirement planning solutions that protect the dreams and promote the prosperity of the American people. So to no further ado, Ashley, thank you for being here today. Welcome. And how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, I'm very excited about this opportunity to speak with you all today, and I look forward to our conversation. Fantastic. We're happy to have you here. Well, Mark, thank you. And uh, again, thank you to Ashley Sawyer and Marianne Mancini, and a a big thank you to Finseca for making this introduction and publishing the article. You know, I think I'm going to frame today's conversation um, by just simply stating that 2021 was a strange and difficult year for planning due to the proposed Build Back Better legislation, which impacted a lot of the life insurance and estate planning that had been implemented previously or was proposed to be implemented for families. Um, so as we think about it, potential changes to grantor trusts, the federal state tax exemptions, and other things made it very difficult to make decisions regarding planning. Regular conversations, as we all know, occurred between all professional advisors uh, regarding the need to implement plans immediately with the hopes of being grandfathered or rather the wait and see approach, uh, depending upon what the thoughts were regarding the legislation. And none of us, advisors and clients alike, like to make these types of decisions in a time frame that's too short and pressured. So today's conversation is going to address some of the mistakes that could have been made uh, if the advisors moved too quickly without considering what the potential consequences were of those planning decisions. And uh, we're going to jump right into it here with the mistakes that trigger gift taxes. And um, actually, the article begins with the discussion around mistakes that potentially could could trigger gift taxes. And you reference such important items as the changes to grantor trusts or naming individuals versus multiple owners. And even the misunderstood topic, I would say it's misunderstood, of naming different owners, different insureds, and different beneficiaries 
And so could you speak to a couple of the mistakes and potential ways to avoid those mistakes? Sure, sure, absolutely. Thank you. And, and you're very right. The, the changes that came about, particularly at the end of the year, triggered a number of people, uh, clients and advisors alike, to have a knee-jerk reaction. How do we avoid the issues that these proposed regulations, particularly with respect to the grantor trust rules, will have if we don't act quickly? Because as the reg said, or the, the proposed legislation said, the effective date would be the date of enactment. So we wouldn't necessarily have much time to address these, these potential issues that would arise. So yeah, the last couple of years, like you said, have, have been unique and difficult for a variety of reasons. But our focus was really on how estate and tax planning was going to be affected, particularly when life insurance was involved. The tax proposal that I'll talk about right now was the changes to the grantor trust rules, which would create a situation where trust assets that were intended to be exempt from estate tax would bleed back into the grantor's estate and be taxable at death. So really just mitigating the the benefits of our planning. In the case of life insurance trusts or islets, I'll refer to them as islets, which traditionally have been used to keep policies and the death benefit outside of the grantor's taxable estate, under these proposed regulations, presumably each time a contribution is made to an islet to pay premiums, which really is how islets traditionally are set up. They just hold the life insurance policy and then crummy gifts or annual exclusion gifts are used to pay those premiums each year. There are other ways. There are loans, split dollar loans, things like that that people use. But the primary way of funding these premiums traditionally has been using annual exclusion gifts, which means there's a contribution each year. So presumably each time a contribution is made to an islet to pay premiums under these new regulations, a portion of the overall trust assets would become includable in the grantor's estate. Consequently, when the insured passes and the death benefit on the policy is paid to the trust, which is much larger than what the trust assets were at the time the contribution was made, the problem of estate inclusion increases exponentially now because that includable percentage of the trust is now a percentage of a multi-million dollar policy. So it really scared the insurance industry quite a bit. There were a number of articles that came out similar to ours, a number of you know, webinars, things like that, that were trying to educate people on what could happen under these proposed regulations. Fortunately, they haven't been passed yet. Doesn't mean they wouldn't be in the future, but we've now had more time to analyze how to take action if they were passed. Since the proposed legislation would only affect grantor trusts, one question was why not just hold life insurance in non-grantor trusts? The great question, but it's not an easy answer. Islets are typically grantor trusts for several reasons, including to avoid transfer for value issues, which we'll touch on shortly, avoid gain on sales to or from the grantor, and avoid interest income on loans to or from the grantor, since the grantor is going to be treated as the owner of the entire islet and its property for income tax purposes. Now, Code Section 677A3 is one of the triggers that's commonly used for grantor trust status because it's easy to administer. It, it simply provides that if any income of a trust, which is referenced as taxable income in the year that it's taxed, is used to pay premiums on life insurance policies on the grantor or the grantor spouse without the consent of an adverse party, which under the code is, is a child or another beneficiary of the islet, then that islet is going to automatically be a grantor trust. 67783 is a hurdle to get around if you try to avoid grantor trust status because both case law and IRS guidance 
indicate that it might not matter if the trust expressly prohibits the use of income, which creates a problem for drafting, or it says the premiums must be paid from principal, so you could draft that in there, but IRS guidance and case law says that doesn't necessarily mean that the trust is going to be a non-grantor trust. And that's because the trustee could breach fiduciary duty and actually use income to pay principal, or they could not realize or might not realize that if they don't use the income in the year that it is um, taxed, but instead add it to principal, and the principal is used in that year to pay income or to pay premiums, then that is technically the use of income to pay premiums. So it could be a mistake. It could just be failure to administer properly or just not recognize that that's what's happening under the terms of the trust. So as you can see, this created a lot of worry in the estate planning community because it would be difficult to toggle off grantor trust status if these potential changes to grantor trust rules were enacted. Uh, some possible solutions that people came up with would be to incorporate consent requirements of an adverse party, which is difficult for many people, particularly parents to, to contemplate because they don't necessarily want their children to know that they have um, a, po a policy out here with multi-millions of dollars that's going to be paid out when their parents pass. So convincing clients to give a beneficiary child that power to consent each time a premium is paid is difficult. You also could say that the premiums have to be paid from a separate non-interest bearing account perhaps, and that account it's funded initially at the time the trust is funded, or you could uh, use the income from the principal of the trust to hold that non-interest bearing account and use it in future years to pay premiums. So there are a few different options, but all of them are, are difficult to follow, difficult to administer, and difficult to explain to clients. Now that we've talked about the, the issues with toggling off grantor trust status and the the problems that the proposed legislation could create. I'll also mention a couple of other things that people did or were thinking of doing in order to try to address the issue it revolves around these grantor trust islets. So one of them might have been to name multiple individuals as owners, and there are problems with that. So it's important to consider the ownership of the policy to ensure, one, that it remains outside of the insurer's taxable estate, but also that you can treat those premiums as annual exclusion gifts. Uh, when a policy is held in a properly drafted islet, the premiums would qualify as annual exclusion gifts to the beneficiaries, provided that you follow those rules with giving crummy notices and having withdrawal rights under the document itself. But if a policy is owned by more than one individual, perhaps uh, three children, the insured wants their three children to be the owners, they consider We'll just use our annual exclusion gifts to pay the premiums on behalf of these three children, and it will be the same as an islet. But the problem is the children as owners would have to act together in order to do anything with that policy. And so it may not qualify as an annual exclusion gift because each of those three children would have to be treated as having a present interest and power over that gift itself. That's really a problem that arises very quickly if you do individual people as being co-owners of a policy. Now, two or more parties as an owner or the insured and the beneficiary being an owner, this is an issue that came up in the case of Goodman versus Commissioner. And uh, this is really a situation where perhaps an insured spouse is the owner or a revocable trust by someone other than the insured in the own, is the owner. So in, in Goodman, uh, upon the insured's death, the owner 
would have been deemed to have made a gift to the designated beneficiary other than the owner of the entire death benefit, which would have triggered uh, a gift tax. So specifically in that case, the wife created a trust that was revocable by her during her husband's life to hold life insurance on her husband's life and designated that upon her husband's passing, the proceeds from the insurance would pass to a trust for their three children. When her husband did in fact pass, she no longer had the power to revoke the trusts under the terms of the trust agreement she created, and she was then determined to have made a completed gift of the entire death benefit to the children. So as opposed to gifting premiums or gifting the value of the policy uh, at the time it was purchased, which is going to be much lower, she was deemed to make a gift of the entire death benefit, which was much higher. So Ashley, let's move on to the second topic in the article, which is mistakes that trigger income tax. And you know, I guess I would say along the same lines as mistakes that trigger gift taxes, there's, there's potentially a number of actions that could trigger income tax, uh, specifically related to life insurance policies. And some of the things that are mentioned, some of the things that we look at on a, on a weekly basis, the phantom income issue upon surrender or lapse of policies, maybe the tax upon surrender uh, with the policy that has an existing loan is often over, overlooked. You know, I, and I guess from our side of the house on the insurance um, uh, business, you know, what we would say is the insurance world, the insurance professionals out there, uh, us included, should always make sure that we ask the insurance carrier for a formal accounting of what the tax basis is. We, we can't make the assumption that we know what the tax basis is and therefore calculate what a potential gain is. But what, what do you see as some of the mistakes that, that could trigger income tax? It is not uncommon for clients to reconsider insurance purchases, regardless of what the tax laws are. And really, it just their ideas around insurance change as their own personal financial situations change. Their liquidity increases. Uh, they may have sold business interests, and so they may not feel like they need the liquidity that the insurance policy provides. And really, the proposed tax law changes did incentivize more people to look at this sooner than they may otherwise have because they would have held the policies in the life insurance trust. They would have been concerned about the grantor trust rules of keeping the policies. And so instead of, of continuing to fund those, they would just allow them to, uh, to lapse or surrender them. So whether the policies are held outright or in trust, it's important to remember that lapse or surrender of a policy may create taxable income to the extent that the payout exceeds the investment in the policy contract, which is a concept similar to to basis. So again, it, it is very important that we don't just estimate that number, that we ask the carrier for a formal accounting, like you said, of the tax basis and an estimated calculation of what the gain would be if that happened. So just as when a, a surrender of a policy results in payment in excess of the investment or basis, there might be income tax consequences there. Where there's a loan on the policy at the time of lapse or surrender, that also could be treated as ordinary income, similar to forgiveness of debt. The same results when the trustee of an islet surrenders a policy and the income is taxable to the grantor, or when the grantor trust status of a trust is terminated during the grantor's life, when there's an outstanding loan payable by the trust to a third party, perhaps in the case of, of split dollar uh, arrangements where a third party who's not the beneficiary, who's not the grantor, is paying the premiums for those policies. Under this situation, according to IRS guidance, the termination of the grantor trust status would be treated as a disposition by the grantor for income tax purposes so that the grantor has an amount realized equal to the outstanding debt. And if we're dealing with a cash loan, 
the basis in the property would be negligible. So a large portion of that amount realized would be subject to income tax at the time that the grantor trust status terminated during the life of the insured. The third topic uh, that you speak to is mistakes when transferring a policy. And boy, when I read this, it it, it became clear that these are mistakes that are, are very often overlooked. Um, so this is a, another really important topic to uh, to address. Um, would you speak to things such as the code section 2035, um, sale versus transfer of a policy, and then there's some exceptions to the transfer for value, uh, and maybe even address some of the gifting policies and what a uh, what a form 712 might be. That's something that's important as we, as we think about this uh, this topic. So with the increased exemptions, the gift tax exemption, GST exemption that most of our clients had over the last several years, people wanted to transfer policies that they owned into these life insurance trusts, even if the value of the policy might have been somewhat high, it never was going to be quite what the death benefit was. And so a way to use their exemption could have been to make an outright gift. Uh, They also could sell, but people tend to want to gift because it's simpler. Maybe it costs less because they don't have to to pay an attorney to draft the purchase and sale documents and that sort of thing. The problem with making a gift is Section 2035. What it does is it pulls the death benefit of a gifted policy back into the estate of the donor when the donor dies within three years of death. So if you haven't insured a client who's created a life insurance trust, and they want to uh, gift that policy to the trust just because it's quick and easy and simple. Uh, They do that, but then subsequently they pass within two or three years of the gift. The entire proceeds of the policy, the death benefit, could be pulled back into their taxable estate. So their action in making the gift um, was really uh, pointless. It didn't result in any benefit to them at that point in time. Now, there is a way to get around that. And again, it's it's the sale versus the gift transfer of the policy. This is an exception under Section 2035, which says that if the policy is sold for adequate and full consideration uh, in the case of a policy transfer to an islet, for example, as long as the trustee of the policy uh, obtains a fair market value and it's purchasing the policy from the grantor for that fair market value, then technically 2035 does not apply to pull the policy back into the insured's taxable estate, even if he or she dies within three years of the transfer. And because the grantor is treated as the owner of the policy and the trust for income tax purposes, the sale is not a realization event, so it's not going to trigger gain. Uh, And as a result, the sale is going to be an attractive option for an older insured or an insured who has exhausted his or her gift tax exemption. So you always want to counsel your clients to to consider these options, even if it may be a a bit more timely or costly to go the sale route, because especially in case of an older person or someone who's in poor health, this is going to avoid that potential risk of including the policy proceeds in their estate. But it's important to remember that specific facts and circumstances matter. So if an insured actually does die within three years of the sale, the IRS still might challenge the value used for the sale and argue that the sale price actually should have been closer to the value of the death benefit than what the parties determined at the time of the earlier sale, which likely was much lower. And we'll get into how those policies are valued shortly. This was the case in uh, Pritchard versus Commissioner where the insured died 32 days after the sale of the policy to his daughter uh, when he knew he was terminally ill. 
which was a much shorter time than calculated by the mortality tables on which the premiums were calculated. Uh, the court held that the value determined at the date of the transfer is technically recognized as the value of the policy for gift tax purposes. So they did acknowledge that that the uh, the regs and the code state that they could use that. However, when death is known to be imminent, the value of the policy being transferred must be based on the proceeds of the policy that would be received at the insured's death. Fortunately, this valuation issue is really only present when it was known that the insured was in poor health or, or with an advanced age. Case law and IRS guidance does support that when death occurs unexpectedly within three years, even though the IRS may audit the, the transaction, the gift tax value would be respected. So, you know, if you or I went and sold our policy and then were hit by a bus tomorrow, the IRS still would respect the gift tax value that we use because we don't expect that that's going to happen to us tomorrow. Um, now, with respect to, to tax-free transfer, as I mentioned, when we're dealing with a grantor trust and a, a grantor islet, uh, and then the grantor being the, the person who is actually selling the policy, there's not going to be a transfer for value issue there. We're not going to trigger a realization event. There's not going to be a capital gains tax associated with it. But there are some issues when you transfer the policy to other people. If the sale is not covered by an exception to this rule, which is under Section 101A2, which includes transfers to the insured, a grantor trust, a spouse, a partner, or a corporation or a partnership in which the insured has an interest. So those are the exceptions to the rule. If one of those exceptions does not come into play, then the death benefit in excess of the policy basis plus consideration is treated as ordinary income that's going to be taxable. So that can create quite a tax at the time of the sale. A transfer by sale to a non-grantor trust may not qualify for an exception to the transfer for value rule unless it was considered a partner of the insured. But remember, even if it did qualify for an exception, the transfer would still be a taxable event since the trust is a separate and independent taxpayer from the seller. So again, another benefit to keeping these life insurance trusts as grantor trusts is we don't have to worry about that risk. But that risk can come into play when you're dealing with a transfer to a family member of the insured who's other than the spouse um, and really any other situation where they're not covered by these very uh, slim exceptions to the rule. So let's finish up here with the last topic uh, that you mentioned in your article, and it's a big topic. It's mistakes in drafting insurance trust. So I'm going to let you address whatever you feel is appropriate to um, close out our podcast here for today with respect to mistakes in drafting insurance trusts. Sure. A lot of this also goes back to what we spoke at, uh, spoke about in the beginning regarding the grantor trust rules and the changes to the grantor trust rules. So some of these mistakes that I would like to point out involve drafting. Others involve a combination of drafting and poor administration of these trusts. Uh, the trust is only going to be as good as the, the parties who are administering it according to its terms. With respect to uh, drafting issues that can result in uh, poor administration and then really failure of the entire plan, if we're dealing with, talk again about the non-grantor islets, if we're dealing with a non-grantor islet, that is uh, going to be receiving premiums from uh, the non-interest bearing account. Again, you have to be very careful that any interest that's being used to pay that was interest on which tax was paid in earlier years. There are also issues where parties have had other trusts or other individuals pay the premiums. 
for a, a what was supposed to be a non-grantor islet, and they have determined that the trust that is paying the premiums for a life insurance policy is going to be a, a, a grantor trust, regardless of whether the trust agreement specifically says that it is not meant to be that or puts restrictions on how these premiums are supposed to be paid purely from principle. Just the mere fact that that trust uses income to pay the premiums on a policy, whether the trust owns the policy or not, can trigger grantor trust status. So again, it's very, very important to understand how 677 works and uh, how that can trigger the treatment of all of the income of the trust as taxable to the grantor inadvertently just for, for poor administration. Other drafting issues that frequently arise in the context of islets involve crummy withdrawal powers, which can allow premium payments to or on behalf of the trust to qualify for annual exclusion gifts to the individual trust beneficiaries. So again, this is beneficial because it does allow the grantor to continue to fund the trust without necessarily using their gift tax exemption. Uh, when they're doing this, however, they do need to work closely with their attorney or accountant to track whether the trust is going to have automatic allocation of GST exemption. This comes up often where people forget that part. We don't have necessarily a GST annual exclusion unless the trust is drafted in a very specific way, but most of them are not. And so each time these premiums are paid, even if they qualify for the annual exclusion from gift tax, they may have automatic allocation of the lifetime GST exemption, which can run that number down fairly quickly and can result in a, a trust that does not have an inclusion ratio of zero and can then create issues down the line when distributions are made to grandchildren. So there's that, that concern. There's also the concern about not properly administering the crummy trust provisions. So you do have to make sure that notice is given to the beneficiaries and that we keep record of that notice so that if there ever was an audit, we can support the fact that those annual premiums were covered by annual exclusion gifts. And then we also want to make sure that the trust actually has those provisions in it. So I've come across a number of trusts that are meant to be life insurance trusts that don't actually have the crummy withdrawal provisions in there. And so the client is arguing that they've only made annual exclusion gifts to this trust. They've never given notices to the beneficiaries and the trust doesn't even have those withdrawal provisions in it. So that can be quite problematic. The other issue that can arise is the provisions in the trust agreement specifically saying that the annual exclusion gift or the withdrawal rights apply only to gifts to the actual trust, as opposed to indirect gifts to the trust, which could be made by the grantor paying premiums directly to the insurance company. And that happens more often than not, where a um, an empty islet that only holds a policy doesn't actually have a bank account that these premiums are being run through. And instead, the grantor, the insured, is just paying the premiums directly to the life insurance company, treating them as annual exclusion gifts because they are indirect gifts. And then realizing that the trust doesn't actually say that they can do that. It only covers withdrawal rights for direct gifts to the trust. So you have to be careful when you're drafting to make sure that any transfers to the trust, whether they are indirect or direct transfers, would be covered by these withdrawal rights so that they can qualify for annual exclusion gift status. And then, of course, the, the best way to administer these trusts is to encourage the, the trustee to actually open a bank account, even if it's just going to be an empty, non-interest-bearing account. 
and to run those premiums through the account before they're actually paid to the insurance company. Let them sit there for 30 or 60 days so that we can support the fact that the beneficiaries actually did have a present interest in the amount that was funding that account for the, the withdrawal period of time that's designated by the trust agreement, and then have the trustee actually wire the money to the insurance carrier or, or write a check. So we have a clear paper trail of this trust being administered properly, the beneficiaries actually having the right to withdraw some actual cash value, and then we can support all of that in the case of a future audit. So this is really great information. We appreciate you sharing your time with us today. I'm going to allow you to, to add any um, closing remarks or thoughts if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience. So I think the most important thing to note is that 2021 was not the first year that we've had this kind of rush to address potential issues that might arise. And I don't think it's going to be the last year that's involving threats of significant tax law changes that would affect the work that we do for our clients. So it's important to be thoughtful when planning so that you don't end up putting clients in a worse position, regardless of whether the laws change or not. So it's never a good idea to rush to do planning that's going to affect uh, our clients for the rest of their lives. And we certainly don't want them to come back if the laws don't change like they didn't this time, at least. And, uh, and and blame us for major changes in their plan that are not really what they intended. It may have resolved the short-term worry and risk, but in the long term, it's not going to be the best planning for them. Well, thanks again, Ashley. Thank you to your partner, Marianne Mancini, and thank you to Finseca for uh, publishing this article and, and introducing us. We appreciate your time today and look forward to, uh, to working with you in the future. Thank you. The material and opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what is appropriate for you, please contact a member of our team.